My wife and I just got back from Colombia on Thursday evening of this past week, and I leave for Uganda on Thursday afternoon of uh, this week. So that just gives you an idea. So I don't want you to think, though, that I'm squeezing you in between, even though, even though on the calendar it may look that way. I hope you have me now, right? Audio? Is it working? Oh. Should have a green light. Uh, let's see. It is green. So we'll let him work that out, okay? Please, uh, I am going to, in your bulletins, you'll see that um, what is down listed for the New Testament reading is Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. That is what we're going to look at this morning. And so you can please turn to that and hold that open. But I'd like to begin by reading the verses that are just before that at the end of the uh, previous chapter in chapter 18 beginning with verse 35 because it it it's it's very important if we were to turn to Matthew or Mark we would find this same passage about the man who is healed uh, by Jesus outside of Jericho and you're going to see that in Matthew and and I'll explain it a little bit later but in Matthew and Mark we're told that this miracle happens as Jesus is leaving Jericho. In fact, Matthew tells us that there were two people, two blind men, and one of them was by the name of Bartimaeus. So it's, it's only Mark and Luke who mention the one, probably the more commentaries, commentators think it's probably Bartimaeus was the more vocal guy. And so they focus on the one man rather than the fact that there were two there. But... Why is it, we wonder a little bit, why is it that Matthew and Mark say that that miracle happened as Jesus was on his way out of Jericho, but Luke tells us that it was on the way into Jericho? And I will mention that a little bit later because it figures in with what is going to be happening with Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. And so we'll, we'll see. There is, it's, it is, he was on his way, Jesus was on his way out of Old Jericho, I'm sorry, on his way out of, yes, that's right, Old Jericho and on his way into New Jer- Jericho. So in Jesus' day, there are two Jerichos, a new, an old one that had been built during the time of King Ahab, that had been rebuilt from the one that had been destroyed in Joshua's day, and now there is a new Jericho that King Herod Antipas has had built for his summer palace. And so... Yes, the blind man was healed, or blind men were healed on their way as Jesus was leaving the older Jericho rebuilt by an Israelite. Mm -hmm. And he is also healed as Jesus is entering a new Jericho built by a Gentile king. And that's what is significant about it. So let us hear these, this, the word of God. Luke chapter 18, beginning with verse 35. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling them to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. 
And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and following him, glorifying God and all the people when they saw it gave praise to God. He entered Jericho and was passing through and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let us, um, and you always say, Amen and Hallelujah. Amen and Hallelujah. Okay, let's pray, please. Dear Heavenly Father, we glorify and praise your holy name along with those who witnessed these miracles. We praise and glorify your name for the salvation which Jesus Christ, our God, our Savior, our King, has brought to us. For we are the recipients of that grace, that mercy, that salvation, that forgiveness. Father, we pray now that your Spirit which inspired this, your word, would now work through it to apply it to our hearts and minds that we would be built up in our faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. This section of Luke's gospel brings us to a point that is like the converging of millennia. It's amazing if you step back just for a moment and look at it. And I don't know how many of you have had the opportunity to read your Old Testaments. If you haven't, I would encourage you to do that. I'm going to mention some things that this passage reflects on because we see it, especially as the blind man cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. With this man's cry, it is, as I said, as if the history of Israel is all coming together to prepare for the events that are about to take place during the next a little over a week as Jesus goes up into Jerusalem and is going to be crucified and then resurrected. Luke's mention of Jericho is a mention of location after not telling us where Jesus was for the last nine chapters. So that brings our attention to the fact, what is the significance of what is going on here? Here Jesus, as I said a little bit earlier before the scripture passage, is in front of the gates of Jericho. This is not the Jericho that he has just left. The old city that was built on the ruins of the city that had been destroyed by under, the, under Joshua, under, I'm sorry, Jer- I said Jericho, it had been destroyed under the leadership of Joshua after Israel had crossed the Jordan River and come into the promised land. 
That ancient city that had stood for a thousand years before Israel arrived there had been completely, as you remember, the walls had been brought down. And then under a curse, it had been rebuilt during the days of King Herod with the loss of the man's oldest son and the loss of the man's youngest son. So that city that's been standing there for this time since the days of King Ahab up till now is a Jewish rebuilt city. Jesus just left it. And now he's about to enter a new city. A new city that has only been built within the last the previous decades. Because Herod wanted a place to go that was cooler in the winter. I'm sorry, that was warmer in the winter. And so instead of instead of having his palace in Jerusalem, he comes down and has a palace built for himself down here in this lower area by the Jordan. And Jesus is now, therefore, about to enter a Gentile-built city, like the old Jericho that had been destroyed 1,400 years before under the leadership of Joshua. And that's the significance. That's the thing that we're to think about. At this point, Matthew and Mark leave the the healing of this blind man, and they move us right up to the triumphal entry. They take us right there. Why? Because they, by the inspiration of the Spirit, they move from the words of the blind man, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Pointing to the fact that this blind man believed that Jesus is the promised king of Israel. And what's the next thing to happen? They go up to Bethany where he gets on a donkey and he's going to ride into Jerusalem and the people are going to be crying out. Blessed, in the name, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because they too believe that the son of David, the king of Israel, is arriving and about to enter Jerusalem. But the Spirit works a little differently through Luke. Same Spirit, but giving us a little bit different perspective by telling us about three events that actually took place between the healing of the blind man and Jesus entering Jerusalem. Three things happen. One is the meeting with Zacchaeus that we're about to look at. The next one is the parable of the ten minas that Jesus is going to tell. And the third is Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem because he knows the judgment and destruction that are going to be brought on it by the Romans because they did not believe that it was God, their king, who was about to enter the city of Jerusalem. And why that different perspective? We'll look at that. So there's another converging of the ages here. Another converging. So the the first is, is that just as Joshua and Israel 1,400 years had stood before a Gentile city, a Gentile built Jericho, the first conquest on their way into the promised land. Jesus now stands before another Gentile-built Jericho. That's the first thing. And you remember, because Pastor Bill is no, no doubt told you, that the name Jesus and Joshua are the same name. Yehoshua. 
Okay, so they're the same name. So the Joshua of old had stood before that Gentile city, and now the Joshua, Jesus, the new, the Savior, stands before that city. The second thing that's interesting is, if you were to turn to 2 Kings chapter 25, you would find that the last king of Israel had been a, a wicked man by the name of Zedekiah. And he was, how did he get out? What, what was his end? What happened to that man? The Babylonians had been surrounding the city of Jerusalem for a couple of years, and finally one night, as they were about to conquer the city, he and his men dug a hole through the wall of Jerusalem, and they escaped, and he fled down to the plain of Jericho. And what happened to him there? He was captured by Nebuchadnezzar's general Nebuzaradan, who made him wit, and he was taken to the city of Riblah, where he was made to witness the execution of his sons, and then his eyes were gouged out so that that would be the last thing that he had ever seen. That's what happened to that man, Zedekiah. And then he was taken off in chains, blind to Babylon. Now here, we have had another blind man who recognizes that the true king of Israel not like that godless, unfaithful, unbelieving Zedekiah, but God himself has returned to the plain of Jericho. So it's a very interesting rounding out after 600 years. Luke tells us, as I said, about these three things that are going to happen after the healing of this blind man. And with this, we see... These additions, they show us that Jesus will not be entering Jerusalem as one who meets the expectation of his disciples. One who is going to come as the conquering king in what we call the triumphal entry. One who is going to overthrow the Roman Empire and lift the Israelites' kingdom to rule over all the nations of the earth. No. That is the expectation of the disciples. That is why they don't want the blind man. You wonder, why would these disciples begrudge a blind man from being healed on the way? Because it's going to slow Jesus down. They don't want anything to slow this train down. They want Jerusalem conquered. They want the, I mean, they want, they want the Romans conquered, overthrown, and the Israelite kingdom restored. So, shh, to the blind man. And equally, the frustration. Why would they be frustrated that Jesus is going to, he is going to speak and spend time with a tax collector? Matthew, one of the apostles right there, used to be a tax collector. They don't want this train to be slowed down. But these passages... Zacchaeus, the ten minas, Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, show us that it is not the disciples' expectation that is going to meet, be met when Jesus enters Jerusalem. Rather, Jesus will enter Jerusalem as one who comes to seek and the lost and to save them from the judgment that they deserve through his own death and resurrection. In these verses, we're reminded of the true purpose of the Son of David, the Son of Man, 
and that is to seek and to save the lost. And so in these verses we see seeking and saving. Here we're reminded that the conquest that ushers in the kingdom of God is not the bringing down of walls around cities or the toppling of governments and the slaying of people. The conquest that ushers in the kingdom is Christ's conquest of sin. His is a, the vict, is a victory, the effect of which the effects of which are to spread are spread by the preaching of the gospel and people's faith in the good news. It is faith and hope in the true Son of David. It is the toppling of unbelief and the transformation of lives. This passage brings us back, brings us back to Jesus' first preaching when he came out of the Jordan and went up to Galilee. It brings us back to the fact that the purpose of Jesus started out as seeking and saving the lost and concludes as seeking and saving the lost. Seeking, verses 1 through 7. Before Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he has something very important to do in Jericho. The very vocabulary that's going to be used here shows us how important it is. There was a man there by the name of Zacchaeus, we learn, you know, maybe some of us grew up singing that Sunday school or a vacation Bible school song. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. And I don't remember all the rest of the words. He climbed up in a sycamore tree. The Lord, he wanted to see, that's right. Well, you sing that later with Pastor Bill. This man, this Zacchaeus, is called a chief tax collector, and we are told that he was wealthy. We don't actually know for sure what it means that he was a chief tax collector. There's a lot of suspicion, and it's probably right. But what it probably means is that he was, had the contract with the Romans for tax collections in this area. In other words, you would bid on being the tax collector. You would bid on how much you could raise in taxes. In other words, the guy who promised to give the most money, that's the guy who got the contract. And since Jericho was on a major east-west thoroughfare, there's probably a good place to make money. Now, a chief tax collector, no doubt, and we suspect, is somebody who hired a lot of other little guys to go and make sure that all the taxes were being paid. And so he would get a cut from all those little guys, and he would have the cut from what he had raised for the Romans. Because after all, he had only, only promised the Romans so much. So anything on top of that was cream. So this was a guy who broke probably, I'm not saying he did break arms, but you know, that's the kind of work he was in. You're squeezing people for their taxes. Therefore, we're told that's why he was, uh, that's probably why we're told that he was wealthy. But we are also told some other things about him. One thing we are told is that he wanted to see Jesus. Now, we don't know why he wanted to see Jesus. Was it curiosity? Was there something actually more at work in his life? No doubt to the second. But he may not have been aware of it. Because it was the Lord who wanted him to see Jesus. And we're also told that he was short. And so that was going to prevent him from seeing Jesus if he stayed there until the crowd got there because he wouldn't be able to see over the crowd. So he sees the road that Jesus is using. He goes ahead. He climbs a sycamore fig tree. It was an easy tree to climb. It had low branches because they harvested fruit from it. 
The real thing to note is this man's eagerness. Whether it was curiosity or something else was working in his heart, you got to remember, this was no boy. This was a man. A man who was old enough and mature enough to have secured the contract for tax collection from the Romans. He was a wealthy man, a chief tax collector working for the Roman Empire. He probably had very few friends. He would have been absolutely hated by the Romans because he was a Jew. And he would have been hated by the Jews because he worked for the Romans. So who is going to be this guy's friend? And here he was climbing a tree in order to see Jesus. But no matter how surprised we might be at what Zacchaeus did, it's really relatively nothing compared to what Jesus is about to do. When Jesus reaches the place where this sycamore fig tree stood, he stops, looks up, and says, Zacchaeus, come down, because I must stay at your house today. Now, it doesn't surprise us that Zacchaeus had heard about Jesus. After all, even a blind man had heard about Jesus outside the city. But Zac- So it's not surprising that he had heard about Jesus and just wanted to see what he looked like. What's amazing is Jesus knew who Zacchaeus was. He knew him by name. That's just one of the many amazing things that's happening here. Second, it's amazing that Jesus tells him to come down immediately because he must stay at his house that day. There's the significant word, must. Do you know what other times in the Gospel of Luke the word must has been used? What the other places are? One instance is found in chapter 2, verse 49, when Jesus at the age of 12 was separated from his parents and they asked him why he did this to them and he said, didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? The second time is in chapter 443 when the people of Capernaum tried to stop him from leaving the city because they wanted him to keep healing and preaching there. And he said, I must preach the kingdom of God in other villages other towns. In 922, he told his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and must be killed and raised on the third day. And in chapter 13, verse 16, in a very significant passage, Jesus heals a woman who is bent over on the Sabbath because he is freeing her from Satan. It was Satan who was, had her all bound up. And he said, this woman must be healed on the Sabbath. And then in chapter 13, 33, he told the Pharisees that he must keep going that day and the next because no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. And then in 1725, he told his disciples again that he must suffer many things and must be rejected by this generation. Now he says to Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house this day. He has put staying at Zacchaeus's house on the order of doing the will of God 
and saving God's people. Fulfilling the saving work of his death and resurrection. He's put it on that level. It's amazing. By such a declaration, he has placed the necessity of staying at Zacchaeus' house on the on the same level as the rest of his purpose and tasks in this world as the Messiah. The necessity of staying at Zacchaeus' house wasn't general with regard to saving any lost man or any lost woman, but specific to this man and his household on this day. No doubt Zacchaeus didn't understand any of that at this point, but he did understand that the Jesus, who he had been very anxious to see, was telling him to come down immediately because he had to stay at his house. His reaction is nothing less than the pure eagerness of a young boy. He came down immediately and gladly welcomed Jesus into his house. But we also see that the reaction of Zacchaeus is at odds with the reaction of everybody else except Jesus. And we know that again because of Luke's vocabulary here. Luke writes, they all grumbled because Jesus had chosen to be the guest of a sinner. All. That's not just the general crowd. That includes the apostles. Everybody with Jesus is grumbling. As with the blind man on the road, the contrast between Jesus' purpose and the desire of his followers is in sharp contrast. Earlier, those leading the way tried to silence the blind man. As far as they were concerned, things too important were happening for Jesus to be delayed for a beggar. Jesus, But Jesus stopped and healed the man. Now once more, Jesus has stopped. But not only stopped, but to tell the man that he must stay at the man's house that day. This is not at all, not at all, what those who are with him think that he should be doing, including his apostles. Like those with Jesus that day, we often imagine that we know what Jesus should be doing. We know who he should heal. We know whom he should save. We know what he should do to expand his kingdom. We know what sorts of government he should use. We know what sort of people he should bless. We know the prayers he should answer. We know that his agenda should be the agenda that we imagine for him. We not only know who and what, we know when he should do all these things. We may mutter against his purposes, but I assure you they are better than ours. By his grace, he calls savingly to himself, not just any people, but all those whom he knows by name. Praise God that they will be saved, not by accident, not by chance, but because they must be saved. Saving, verses 8 through 10. The fact that all grumbled because Jesus had gone to be the guest of a sinner causes us to presume that when Jesus stands to speak, it's now he's now in his own house. It must be while he's there. Unlike the other occasions, other occasions when Jesus goes and eats at someone's house, we're always told what Jesus said. And therefore, that makes us understand 
you know, he, sometimes he'd tell a parable. Remember the woman who's washing his feet with, his ha- with her hair. So it, it, it causes us to understand the context, therefore, of what the people who are also in that house then say in response to what Jesus does or what he says. Here we're not told of any of the words of Jesus in Zacchaeus' house. All we find is Zacchaeus' response. It is not the response of resentment or suspicion or criticism that happened in the homes of Pharisees. No. This, this is the response of repentance and faith. He, de- he stood and declared, in effect, that right then, because of the, the tenses he's using, right then and right there, he is going to give half of all he has to the poor. Now, he uses a conditional if, and no doubt he had defrauded others. But if he has defrauded anyone, he will restore to them fourfold all that he has taken. This is the truest of repentances. And this is the thankful expression and gratitude of a man who is thankful for what Jesus has done for him. The impact of the kingdom on his life was not limited to, a, to the change that it affected, you might say, in him. It was going to transform the way he lived. It affected all of his life and his declaration to the Lord proves it. And that's another thing. Luke tells us in verse 8 that Zacchaeus called him Lord. In the gospel of Luke... People who don't believe call him rabbi, and people who are disciples call him Lord. In verse 8, Zacchaeus' declaration proves that he has become a disciple of Jesus Christ. His declaration here isn't just the response of one who is penitent concerning his sin. His declaration is the expression of his faith and his new devotion to his Lord Jesus. And Jesus' response also proves this. Jesus tells Zacchaeus that salvation has come to this house. The word salvation is used only six times in the Gospel of Luke. All the other five, the other five times are all in the first two chapters and are all related to the birth of John the Baptist or the birth of Jesus. This is the sixth time that it's being used and it is being used by Jesus himself to say, that salvation has come to this house. No matter what all the people thought of this man and no matter what this man had come to think of himself because of his betrayal of his own people, as one who now believed in, the God, in God like Abraham had believed, this man proved that he was a true son of Abraham. But Jesus isn't finished. He reminds everyone why he came to this man's house and why he came into the world. He came to seek and to save the lost. That was his ministry. That was his purpose when he began preaching. And that is his purpose at the end of his earthly ministry before his crucifixion. 
The expectation of the disciples and other followers of Jesus concerning the purpose for Jesus' coming and what he will do when he arrives in Jerusalem is very different from what Jesus describes here as his purpose for coming and what he will do in Jerusalem. They're all expecting the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14 where the one like the Son of Man is given all authority, glory, and sovereign power over all peoples, nations, and men of every language who will worship Him, whose, king, whose dominion is declared to be an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and a kingdom that will never be destroyed. They are expecting that Judgment Day is about to arrive. But by Judgment Day... They mean judgment on everyone who's not a Jew and salvation for everyone who is. But the spirit who inspires the writer of this gospel, Luke, does not want us to get sidetracked like the disciples to think that Jesus' purpose for coming into the world has changed somehow. And so he reminds us that this is still Jesus' purpose before he goes to Jerusalem. He has indeed come to bring the salvation that Isaiah the prophet, Zechariah the priest, and Simeon spoke about in the early parts of this gospel. But it is not the salvation of Israel from its national enemies. It is the salvation of the sons of Abraham from the enemies of sin and death. Israel's problem isn't that a foreign empire oppresses it. Israel's problem is that it, has, it is lost in sin and has wandered far from its Lord. Jesus' purpose for coming hasn't evolved over the course of his ministry. His purpose for coming hasn't changed. He called a tax collector to follow him near the beginning of his public ministry. And now here at the end, he calls another tax collector to follow him. He must stay at the home of this tax collector because he has come to seek and to save the lost. Not those who think that they are righteous, but those who know that they are wicked sinners and must repent and find in him the only salvation that they need. His purpose for coming hasn't changed. The preaching of the gospel of the kingdom wasn't just preparation for something bigger and better. It's why he came. He came not only to secure the future salvation at the full manifestation of the kingdom of God. He came to bring a present salvation. He came to seek and to save right now so that those who are lost can be found and forgiven and saved for the day when the Son of Man does come back on the clouds like that description in Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. We make a terrible mistake when we think and act as if the purpose for His coming now is for the enrichment of our lives in this world. We make a mistake, a terrible mistake, when we forget that His continuing purpose until His coming in glory is the seeking and the saving of the lost, which He does through the continuing proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. It's why He came. Long before the events of this chapter, of this verses, when the Lord directed Joshua and the nation of Israel to conquer the ancient Canaanite city of Jericho, it was with the instruction that everything in that city be Corban, 
devoted to the Lord's to the Lord by destruction. Everything was to be burned up. Do you remember that? That means every living thing in it was to be killed or destroyed and then burned in fire, and only the things that could pass through fire were then to be taken out and turned into the treasury of the Lord. Everything that passed through the fire was to become part of the tabernacle. But do you remember what happened? There was a man in that city. There was a man, an Israelite, by the name of Achan. He found a beautiful garment from Babylon. He found 200 200 shekels of silver and he found a wedge of gold that weighed 50 shekels. He coveted them. And so he took those things. He took them to his tent. With his family's knowledge, he buried them in the tent. And when the sin was found out, do you remember what happened? He and his whole household were stoned. They all died. Achan coveted and stole the things of this world, and for his sin, he and his entire household died. Now, 1,400 years later, Zacchaeus comes face to face with Jesus and finds in him not only one who will enter his house, but better, enter his heart. And in response, Zacchaeus is driven driven to give away all the things he has coveted and all the things that he has stolen. On account of his faith, Jesus tells him that salvation, deliverance from death, has come to this house. It's the reversal of Achan, isn't it? Amen. Until he returns, Jesus continues to seek and to save. Today, he is calling you. He is holding out before you forgiveness for your sins and salvation through him alone. Salvation from the judgment you deserve. Today, he is calling you to repent. Today, he is calling you to believe. Today, He is calling you to be saved. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise You for Your grace and loving kindness. We thank You for the salvation that comes alone through Jesus Christ. We thank You, Father, that Jesus doesn't just know us in general, but has called us by name. Therefore, Father, by your grace, you call us to be a people who would forsake everything in this world that we love, everything that we covet, and to lay it all before you in your service, because you are our Savior, you are our Lord, you are our King. Father, we pray that the saving work of Jesus Christ would continue, that we would not become confused, Mm. that it's not about our betterment or the, the, the gaining of the things which we've been coveting all along anyway. Mm. But it's about the kingdom and the glory that belong to Jesus Christ. It's about His praise. It's about His service. 
We thank you, Father, that Jesus, our God and Savior, is a Lord who supplies all of our needs. We thank you that our Savior and Lord Jesus sought us and saved us. And we pray, Father, that by your grace, by your grace and mercy, we would never be like these disciples. But we know how much we already are. Father, forgive us. Father, forgive us and cause us to be filled with great joy for everyone who would ask about Jesus. Filled with great joy for everyone whom we can talk to and tell about Jesus. The one who came to seek and to save the lost. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.